Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Amen. Let us say together the collect for this week. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen. First reading. First reading from Romans 4, 13 to 25. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith, of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, who contrary to faith in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it would be imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Let's, let's read the gospel now from Mark 8, 31 to 38. 
Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them? Excuse me. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Thank you, Rebecca. You're welcome. Okay, this is this time in our meditation. I would like to draw your attention. I want to mention a little bit about the first reading, just one verse. And then I would like to go to the gospel. And, uh, and, and raise some questions for us. But it's Roman, the first verse we read, Romans 4.13, is really a cornerstone verse for the Palestinian liberation theology. Uh, and please look at it carefully. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, did you did you did you pick up uh, for the promise that Abraham will inherit the world? This is very unusual because Paul knew the scriptures. Why did he, would he say that Abraham was promised to inherit the world, the cosmos, not the land? There is no mention in the book of Genesis that Abraham was going to inherit the world. He was going to inherit that according to Genesis. But for, for Paul, he reinterprets the promise in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and in light of the, the spread of the gospel to the whole world. So he says, Abraham, the man of faith, the person of faith, 
uh, is promised the world, not the land. This is revolutionary. Paul refuses to see the promise as the Genesis account describes it, that God promised Abraham the land of Canaan. But due to his faith in Christ, he is looking at a very comprehensive picture, expressing the purposes of God for the salvation, the liberation, the redemption of the whole world. Therefore, Abraham, the father of faith, was promised the world. And in an important note for you to, 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 to just reflect on, you know, the Genesis tradi tradition, the Old Testament scholars tell us, goes back to the fifth century BC. And it was written by priests and scribes who collected and edited the tradition. They put an undue emphasis on the promise of the land to the Jewish people. The demography of Palestine by the fifth century had changed totally. There were so many more people that have come not Jewish from the surrounding countries, surrounding areas, and they were living in the land. So the demography of Palestine has changed drastically. Uh, and so, um, so for, for Paul, uh, theologically, he critiques any fundamentalist understanding of the land, and he sees, he perceives Abraham as being inheriting by God. I mean, God was telling Abraham that he is going to uh, inherit the whole world. So it's very interesting. I wish we have more time to look at it more carefully. But I really wanted to raise it because it comes in the first in the first reading. Now, for us today, I'd love for us to reflect on uh, the gospel reading, uh, which is um, uh, uh, about uh, what Jesus means about discipleship. So, uh, in Mark eight thirty one thirty eight, we read that the first step in discipleship is for us to deny, uh, for every person to deny yourself. This does not mean, I believe, it does not mean that one needs to hate himself or herself. Uh, on the contrary, we are asked to love ourselves. But it means when you deny yourself, you give up or you disavow any connection with whatever you deny. It is the same word used when Peter denied Jesus standing in the courtyard of the high priest. The woman came to Peter and said, you also were with them or with Jesus. You, all, you, are, you are one of them. But Peter said, I do not know this person. He disavowed, he insisted that he had no connection with Jesus. So when, when you deny a person, 
you have nothing to do with that person. If you deny yourself, you are giving up any connection with everything you are denying. So you give up, you are, um, uh, when you deny yourself, you totally surrender yourself to Christ. Paul, the apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Now, I don't like the metaphor of slavery, but you have, in, in, with slaves, you know, they, they have to surrender everything because they have been bought. God takes over, you know, if we are slaves of Christ, uh, God takes over, Christ takes over our life. Jesus has lordship over our life. You become totally dependent on Christ. You cannot say, I am the master of my life. If you deny yourself to Christ, your life belongs to Christ. It is total surrender. You surrender your pride, you surrender your sins, you surrender your feelings of revenge, your biases, you, you, you surrender any racist feelings towards others. Everything that is sinful, impure, ugly, biased, envy, you, you deny it totally. Christ becomes the master of your life because you have disavowed, you have denied yourself. This is very hard. I find it very hard. Uh, this type of total commitment, I find it uh, very difficult for me and I would imagine difficult for many of us. But this is the way the early disciples understood Jesus' words. So for the disciples, they left everything and followed Jesus. Jesus. They denied themselves. When Jesus said to the people, if any person wishes to be a follower of mine, he or she must deny himself or herself. It is total surrender to the leadership of Christ. Probably this might apply to monks and nuns later on. You know, they gave up everything and they went to the convent, they went to the monastery. You know, but most of us, I think, I'm just wondering. Uh, in a minute, I will give it some questions. But you know, can we really uh, understand this, this point, denying yourself, this ultimate total surrender? Are we willing to do it? I don't do it. Uh, but the second point, he said, first, deny yourself, and then second, take up your cross. And what do we mean today by the cross? In ancient times, you know, uh, for many Christians, especially the early Christians, and many times under other in, in countries, uh, uh, the, the cross meant shame, humiliation. Uh, it meant uh, uh, that uh, you will suffer because you're a Christian. But you know, we're living in these Western democracies and many other countries, you know, where it doesn't really hurt very much to be a, a Christian. You can live your Christian life without being humiliated. Although there are places 
in the world still where Christians might be, might be humiliated for their faith. But what does the cross mean for us today? When you are living in a very comfortable life as a Christian, we need to understand what does the cross mean for us, carrying your cross. So I begin to think about it uh, in a different way. But let, before I do that, I want to just briefly say the third step, uh, the first step towards uh, um, following Jesus Christ is to follow him. So there is denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. And that also means total, total obedience, total obedience. And again, I, I tell you, it's not easy. And I think many of us cannot really do it. So there are these questions. And I will try to uh, uh, mention them. And then uh, and then turn it to our discussion. Uh, how do we understand discipleship today? You know, how, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm not a monk. I'm not a nun. I have not totally given up everything. I have a family. I also have my loyalty to them. But I love Jesus Christ. And I, have, I am faithful to him as much as by the grace of God. I'm as faithful as I can be. I'm sure this applies to you as well. So what does it mean today? How do we understand this discipleship today? Uh, and what does it mean to deny yourself? The way I mentioned it, most of us cannot really do it. You know, what does it mean to deny yourself in the 21st century? Um, uh, when you are not facing any persecution or humiliation for your faith? And what does it mean for us today to carry your cross. What are the crosses that we need to carry today? And here, I would like to suggest, and I hope in the discussion it will come out. It's not really, today I feel I'm not asked to, to carry my cross. I, I am asked maybe to carry a communal cross. For example, if I see poverty, I need to carry the cross of poverty and try to fight for the sake of the poor. If I see people oppressed, if I'm talking about the Palestinians oppressed, I need to carry the cross of oppression uh, which the Palestinians are, uh, are bearing. If I see the racism, this is a cross. So it is not only my only cross, but it is the cross that is common to many other people, but I identify with them and I need to carry the, their, the, the cross communally with other friends, with other communities of uh, faith and loving um, people who are committed also to this. So these are some of the questions that I have raised for us today, trying to really make sense for us today in the 21st century, we don't live we're not persecuted for our faith, but we see all kinds of crosses around us. Who are the, what are these crosses? And what is our commitment? 
to, to carrying the cross uh, today? And what does it mean for us? How do we understand discipleship today? So I'll stop, I'm sorry, I took longer than I should, but I wanted to explain this and maybe I turn to you now for the discussion. Please um, uh, immediately uh, uh, try to respond to some of these from your personal experience and also from your uh, theology uh, of uh, that we're talking about. So thank you. And I turn to you, uh, Omar, to explain the way it is done. Uh, and uh, let's begin our discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Assis. Um, just a reminder for everybody, um, you could either let me know in the chat that you would like to speak or raise your hand virtually or, or in reality if you have your camera on and I will try to spot you and, um, and give you a chance to participate. We always encourage everybody to take part because everybody has something to contribute. So, at, so I, I see Darren Myers nodding his head, but not in agreement, but not asking it, not his hand. Um, yes, Robert. It, it strikes me that the invitation to pick up your cross is uh, in many ways sort of a frightening one. Um, when Jesus sees us as this inevitable direction, uh, Paul is, is immediately saying, no, 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 that can't happen to you. And I hear in Peter's voice him saying probably, no, 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 I don't want that to happen to me either. Uh, that picking up your cross is, uh, is something that is, is sort of scary. And I think Jesus is pointing to this not as a prediction, but simply an awareness that if you really go this direction, if you really confront these powers, if you really confront the powers of occupation, if you really confront the powers of the religious authorities, it is inevitable where this is going to wind up. So to me, the emphasis is not so much as, oh boy, where's my cross, as knowing that as I step in and follow Jesus, inevitably it's going to lead to difficult conflict. It can't help but. And it strikes me that, and I think even when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, it's obviously something, a temptation that he would just as soon avoid if possible. So it's not something that we do uh, do with, with a sense of, what well, we do this out of faithfulness, uh, not out of that there's anything inherently good about suffering. It's, it's the inevitable consequence of being faithful. Uh, so it's, it's a good word to the wise, I guess. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Um, Nancy? I believe that when uh, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he's saying, get behind me, Satan, it hasn't been that long since Jesus was in the wilderness where Satan did actually tempt him. And so it's bringing to our mind, to, to Peter's mind, that this is not about Peter. This is not what my mission is about. And maybe at that time, Jesus also felt tempted, but Jesus made it very clear that this is not what 
my mission is about. This is what, this is the direction I need to go. And I want to make that very clear to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Yes, Paul. Yeah, I like the notion, Naeem, that you bring up. What does discipleship mean today? I am puzzled these days by the end of John's gospel when Jesus says to the disciples as he's going away and the spirit will come. And then he says something intriguing. He said, you will do even greater things than I myself have done. So that has led me to think that being a disciple is being Jesus for these times. And the way I think one starts to be Jesus for these times is found in the Beatitudes, the attitudes of being Jesus for these times. Thank you, this is very good. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Um, Judas? Um, well, hi. I uh, think that Jesus uh, set a very high bar when he was <laughs> telling uh, what you have to do to be his follower. But we may all at some time or another have to do um, this. Like as Robert was saying, this, this may come to any of us that follow Christ. Um, and as far as uh, taking up the cross, that's like to me the hard work of of carrying something. You know, do it takes work, if uh, as much as you're able to do to follow Jesus and um, to do what He would like us to do here, and um, and following Jesus uh, is uh, just being being as He told us to do, doing do as as the Beatitudes and more say, and then denying yourself. Um, that's only for your own good. You know, what we want, if it was up to us, we would, <clears throat> as my, excuse me, uh, as my granddaughter said, just stuff all the food she could in her mouth. That's how she dreams of doing I just, you know, we overdo everything. And uh, so denying ourselves, he puts this the first thing, you know, if you need to be healthy, you need to take, you need to say no to all the things you think you need and want. Um, so they're all good, it's all good advice as well as being somewhat ominous. Um, but I enjoyed listening to all your comments. It's, it's been really good so far. Thank you, Judith. Thank you. Um, Cedar? Yeah, when Peter, uh, could not bear to hear Jesus saying that he was going to suffer and be crucified. All of us in this world want a strong leader, a leader who has might, a leader who, can, who, is, who cannot be defeated, a leader who um, does not take intimidation. And we seldom follow a leader who has principles and integrity and uh, 
like Jesus. I mean, that's why Peter objected because it made Jesus uh, look weak in, in the eyes of the disciples. But again, like in, in countries that suffer, including Palestine, and look at Myanmar, look at Yemen, look at many, many other people. I don't want to single us out, but we don't willingly bear the cross. It is placed on our shoulders, whether we like it or not. And we sometimes think, oh, how can we remove this cross? How can we take it off our shoulders? And I think the answer is, as Assis was saying, communal carrying of the cross. If we all take part in carrying the cross, it will be lighter. The burden will be lighter and we can, we can carry it and continue on, continue on the way. Just one more thing, when from the first reading, uh, it is through faith that we are justified, but the law at that time was not yet given. I mean, was it not given through Moses to the Israelites? So, so what Paul is saying um, is, not very, is not very correct because there was only Abraham's faith and the law had not yet been given. I don't know how to uh, That's right. explain no, But But when, it, when the law was given, it was given to the Israelites, to a, to a certain specific group of people. I mean, this is not very important, but it just occurred to me as, as the, the epistle was being read. Thank you. Yeah, but you know what he's saying is that the promise came b before the law, you know, because by law, Abraham had no right to the land. You know, the, the people of the land were already there, you know, the Canaanites. So he had no right. It was, it was a promise. It was a promise of the faith, the faith of Abraham, not the law. So he's making a contrast between that the, the, the law came 100 years later. And that's what I think the, the argument that Paul is, uh, is speaking, mm -hmm. I mean, we, maybe we need to translate it for us today, but the, for Paul in his own context of life, he was trying to make a distinction that, it, uh, that Abraham, the promise to Abraham was by faith, not by law. That came out. You see what I mean? Yeah, I see. I do. Yeah. Um, John. When I read the text of the "Let them deny themselves," for me the first thing is that it tells me I'm I'm not the owner of my own life. I give the ownership of my life to Christ, and I'm not long, no longer the center of my own life because the, the center of my life is Christ that's difficult enough to accept that I'm not the center of my own life because yes. I take all kinds of decisions the whole day and still want to say that I'm not the center that that's really a contradiction in a way of every living being but if we really are serious about this to become his followers then it comes up all the time, is this really what I think is what Christ wants me to do with this life? And, and then comes what Sita said, if Christ wants me to bear a cross, then I have to bear it. And I bear it uh, together with others who also bear their crosses themselves. 
in yeah. solidarity. Thank you, John. Um, Fahed Abu Aqil. Yes, uh, I'm thinking that uh, two dynamics. One, all through history, it is gospel versus culture. Uh, growing up in the Galilee area as a child, I always looked uh, for Easter and never looked for Christmas. And uh, we need to teach our kids in the United States for the first 300 years, nobody said in early Christianity, hello to Christmas. The Easter was the power of Christianity. Huh? So that means uh, as a kid in the US, I begin to look for Christmas, September, October, November, December, until the 25th, but Easter comes and goes and nobody feels it. That means my U.S. culture ate Christianity alive, huh? number one. Number two, as I think it's difficult, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, <coughs> uh, as I think about the reflection of Assis Naim, I think it's difficult to be a disciple in the United States. We need our clergy people and a genuine discipleship. If I'm a mayor, I'm in the seat of power. If I'm a governor, I'm in the seat of power. If I'm a lawyer, a doctor, in every sphere of life, I'm a decision maker. I'm not like the disciple in the, in the belly of the Roman Empire uh, following Jesus. I am right now in the seat of power how can I be disciple of Jesus as a businessman, as a real estate, as a lawyer, as a doctor, unless we empower these people to know what that means, discipleship, then we are losing the, the boat. And that means, you know, to say, I love Jesus and I go to church and pray and heal with everything else. That's a shallow uh, a teaching of the gospel. If we follow Jesus' discipleship. Thank you, Fahid. But that's the struggle, you know, that we have. This is the, the great struggle that, you know, making sense of faith today, making sense of discipleship today, which I think we need to continue to struggle with. Thank um, John? Uh, yes, thank you. I, I want to have, uh, Naeem, you go back to uh, what you said about the difference between the promise of land uh, which was put in uh, the Genesis account, uh, perhaps in the fifth century before the common era, uh, as over against Paul saying that Abraham with those who believe like Abraham will inherit the whole world. Um, say a little bit more about, uh, about that. Um, why do you think this was put in um, around the fifth century uh, BC uh, so that um, it would counteract uh, the, the many ethnic groups that were coming into the land and for these uh, multi-ethnic people to understand, you have to remember the land was promised to Abraham. Uh, say a little bit more about that, please. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John. You know, it's, uh, there is so much that one can say, but, um, you know, because most of us, most people, actually, most Christians and, and evangelicals and fundamentalists and Jews, uh, 
most of these people uh, have clung to the whole idea of uh, that Jews were promised the land, you know. Uh, but the people who wrote Genesis, uh, who collected the material, who edited the material, mainly according to uh, the scholars, Old Testament scholars, they were um, um, priests and scribes, and they were concerned about the land because now the the situation, the demographics of the land had changed. As you said, many people have come in and they wanted to emphasize that God gave them the land. The land is, belongs to them. So you begin to really see, for example, um, uh, uh, the emphasis in the book of Genesis on, on these promises. I mean, you find it go, going back to chapter 17 of Genesis, 18, I think probably in 15 and in other places, and they repeat it, they repeat it. It's not only God gives it, gives the land to Abraham, but it, it is repeated to Isaac, it's repeated to, to Jacob, it's repeated to, the, to their children and so on. Great emphasis on the land given to these people. And it is as if, you know, uh, that these priests and uh, and scribes are saying that regardless of who lives in the land, the land is given to us, you know, in that sense. But at the same time, you notice that Abraham, when his wife Sarah passed away, he did not go to the Canaanites and tell them, God gave me the land. He said, look, I want to bury my wife. Um, would you permit me? And he had, and so that, the, so again, the priests who have written this material in the fifth century, they said that Abraham bought the land. So another emphasis that, that they wanted to affirm that although uh, the, the Canaanites were in the land, but um, this, this place in Hebron, you know, where it happened, where now, uh, the Haram area in the Hebron area, it's, it belongs to them. So they're again trying to emphasize their ownership because Abraham bought it. You know, you could see, I see, at least in my research, I see the way the emphasis on the land of the land that uh, they bought, they bought the land. Not only this, the same thing about the place where Joseph was buried, the same thing about um, David, that he bought the land where the Zion was built, you know, the, the temple was built. You could really see this emphasis on um, that God gave the land to the, to the Jewish people. It is very fascinating. So it relates, you know, I mean, you have to relate it. And I've written quite a bit about this, you know, you have to relate it, you have to connect it between the way those fifth century scribes and priests that were collecting the material, editing it, um, uh, and, uh, and emphasizing this whole question of the land that God gave them the land and it belongs to them alone. You know, regardless of who now was, was res residing on the land.
Thank you, Assis. Is it is it me? Um, yes. 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 <laughs> All right. Um, I wanted to follow that up because, uh, as I read Genesis, it looks like the land was given conditionally because um, God said, "As for you, you must keep my covenant." And I think that's the covenant that echoes throughout the whole Bible, not just the Old Testament. Um, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Um, and the sign of the covenant that they were given at that time was circumcision. But we learn in the New Testament that um, Paul is explaining that circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant. Uh, that baptism, baptism has become the sign of the covenant and, and the circumcision is the circumcision of our hearts, which I think takes us back to that denying ourselves that we're prepared to pay the cost. Um, but, um, but the conditionality of giving of the land seems to me very clear, um, but it's being overlooked. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but it's very helpful. Thank you. Kathy Bergen. Uh, yes, <clears throat> thank you. Um, Assis, I really appreciate uh, what you said about, um, you know, the verse 13 and, uh, and the commentary you had about that. It was very helpful. Um, the collective promise. I'd like to pick up a little bit um, and just say a couple of things about verse um, I think it's 35, uh, about losing your life. Um, for me, that I just want to give you a small example. Um, for me, um, losing my life used to mean more like, um, this was like after the, you know, the 60s and 70s era, you know, giving up physical things, like giving up, you know, beautiful clothes and nice place to live and so on. Um, I still resonate with that, but more in, in conjunction with what it means for our planet today. So it has taken on like new dimensions for me. But I just, in relation to that, I remember um, Gustavo Gutierrez writing in a book that I bought from him um, that we don't want, we're not, um, he's a father of liberation theology. Um, in, um, uh, I think he was living, I think he's from Peru. Um, he said, we don't want you to become like us. We want you to, to work in this world so that uh, we can all have a better standard of living, which was very key to me for, you know, for then um, uh, translating that into my own life. So I just wanted to share that with you, um, how he affected my life uh, when Thank I met him at Mary Thanks, Thank you, Kathy. Kathy. And you know, Kathy, that's exactly what we're really talking about when we say deny ourselves. You know, that, um, you know, uh, now I'm trying to look at it, as I mentioned in my introduction, um, more in a community, in a commun communal way. You know, that so long as, like many other great philosophers or theologians have said, you know, if uh, if when you see a person, any person, if a person continues to be oppressed, we are all oppressed, you know, in that sense. So we have to look at what's happening to the poor. You know, if people are still hungry, then all of us are, are, are 
are suffering and we need to work for their uh, liberation. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Megan? Uh, thank you, thank you, uh, Omar. Uh, I think uh, what Valerie said, uh, um, that's what I was really thinking along those lines. Um, and certainly what Naeem is talking about in terms of a communal responsibility, I think is definitely a call for God's work repeatedly for us uh, to uh, direct us and then to carry the cross it depends very much on our on us in terms of are we listening to God are we listening to where he's leading us to uh, and bear the, the cross but certainly uh, the reading further on goes on in terms of a cost so it, it is it is at a cost now what I would like uh, <coughs> somebody to help with is in terms of um, I feel that at the moment there's a tendency of uh, um, becoming very much communal within our groups, with whether it's to do with religion or not. And really what I would like to ask people is the freedom, to have the freedom of being able to help others, whether they're Muslims, whether they are other religions. So could somebody please uh, expand on that for me? Thank you, Omar. Thank you, Megan. I'm Ante Samia. Uh, I have two points to, to refer to. You say, that's the slogan that they use, the settlers use. God gave us a land and that's, that's it. As if the end of it. But what you said about if people are miserable, people are poor, then we have to feel with them. And it's the same thing. And I think there is a lovely quotation by Dr. Martin Luther King when he said, we are tied in a network of mutuality and I can never be to me. And I think this is very, very important in our Christian faith because it doesn't mean, I mean, if I am well and I am happy myself, that's it. That's that's caring for the other. And that's, I think, a very important uh, message for, for us to be. And you notice that many people are like this. I mean, like the South African, the Palestinians and the South Africans, they, they had something in common and that's why. But it, we need to have people who are comfortable watching, about, watching out for people who are not comfortable or people who lack justice and so on. It, you will find the people who are powerful who are imposing injustice on, on people and who take all the worth, uh, all the wealth of the world. It's in a few people's hands of those who are powerful. I just wanted to reflect on that. What bothers me at the beginning when you, when you said 
forgive us our sins. He forgives our sins. Is there a limit? No matter what we do, he keeps forgiving us. What, where do we stop, really? Where do we stop? And when does he stop forgiving us? So if, if he, we have cut blanche, I mean, if he forgives us, no matter what we do. No limit. Mm. No limit, according to the, to the gospel. No limit. Um, I would like to share something. I mean, I really like this uh, reading. I mean, it's part of it I like, part of it I don't really like. I, the part is that I like that reminds me very much of my childhood. Um, verse 36, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? I mean, this is, I remember when I was a little kid, it was in my grandmother's house, the mother of my father. And I mean, it's whenever I go in to drink water and so on, you couldn't avoid reading it. And even though that I would read it like a million times a day, I would always, I remember that somebody very wise wrote it. I mean, it, it felt, and even when I'm, you know, going back from my grandmother's house, or I would remember it and reflect on it. So, I mean, this always brings me back, you know, I travel back in time um, when it is read. But also this text also brings me back to my, my childhood. I grew up during the first Intifada. And this concept, I never liked it from carrying the cross. Not because the cross is heavy or we don't want to carry the cross. I felt it was very, I mean, just weird. Because growing, I mean, in... In, a, in the Holy Land with lots of religious extremism or religion very much involved with the conflict. So we always would hear the narratives, you know, you see that the settlers, Jewish settlers, you know, with guns and so on and trying to live even in the middle uh, in communities among the Arabs and the Palestinians and going and following the people in the streets and shooting and so on. They were, I mean, it is, it's, they were fighting. There was this concept of regaining the land and serving God as good soldiers. So that was one part. And then the other part of the issue of shahada and martyr dying for the cause is something that is glorified and, um, and so on, especially within the Muslim community that you feel that this is you rewarded into heaven. So people, I mean, it is would say in prayer, may we um, uh, die and suffer for God or for Allah. And for us Christians, we were this weird group, or normal group, <laughs> I would say, that we were saying, you know, it is, it's, that it is, we're talking about the heavy cross and the price of discipleship. So we always felt as little kids that this was embarrassing, too much nagging and so on. Instead of really celebrating carrying the cross, we became as overburned with the cross. And since my childhood, I, find, I don't find that there's a cross that is heavy. I know that there is a price, it's not easy and so on, but I honestly see that there is something that is really beautiful with joining the movement with Jesus. And I think that it is somehow the church because they don't want to carry the cross, they place this text or they interpret it this way as carry the cross and follow me. Instead of really reinterpreting it as a celebration and something that is very joyful and by itself is rewarding following Jesus, regardless what the price is, it has moved into something that doesn't sound very exciting, something that we are going into torture, too much nagging. So that is, I really don't like, I mean, with this carrying the cross concept. 
Thank you, Omar. But you know, Omar, um, later on, I mean, for Paul, he comes to the point in which he begins to say, I glory in the cross. You know, so it becomes, you know, because it's on the cross that Jesus um, died for us, you know. So, so we are so thankful uh, to Christ for what he has done to us. So the cross immediately changes its meaning for us, you know, say, you know, uh, I, um, so I, I glory in the cross of Christ, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and it becomes a very central uh, thing for, for us in our Christian faith. I mean, but also what Fahed said, that it is, it's actually, we move from the cross to the resurrection. The, yes. the resurrection is the center of our faith. It is not the cross. And I think we, we, we as a church, because the, I mean, it is, it's, we, we don't celebrate or focus on a theology of the resurrection as much as it is the, the, um, um, as a theology of the cross. Because I think it is the, the monks and the nuns and the people who have followed into it, they have chosen to suffer for Christ, which is, I think that this is not a relevant theology for us today in a, the, the 21st century. Or maybe not, I don't know, I'm confused. You know, it is the cross and the resurrection. I mean, you know, we usually say the death, death and resurrection of Christ or the death on the cross and the resurrection. So it is the, this is the period of redemption, you know, what, what, what Christ has done to us through his, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. Um, but thank you for your, for your reflection. You know, uh, are there other few, um, it's our time is up. If there is any one, Final reflection, Omar, or are we, can we move on? I mean, I can still give you another half an hour of reflections, Assis, but I think the time is done. People the don't time is up. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you all for your reflection, whether vocal or silent. Um, it is, it's very important to reflect on, on these very important texts, actually, that we read today. So let's move, please, to the wave of prayer okay. at this time. Omar and Mary Claire, nice to have you with us as you join Omar. Yeah. The author, Rajesh Hade, will be accepting the Storyteller Award at his year's Rebuilding Hope virtual benefit. He also recently won the 2020 More Prize for Winning on Human Rights. His book is entitled Going Home, A Walk Through 50 Years of Occupation. Lord, we give thanks for Raja's literary gifts and for his commitment to defending human rights in his work and writing. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayers. Our prayers. Um, Sorry, I have something that is in this.
In this time of pandemic, five university students in Gaza are giving up time each week to volunteer to help young pupils at the Rosary Sisters School in their English, French, and math classes. The students are on a Christian Student Scholarship Program sponsored by the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. Lord, we pray for the children of Gaza, especially those who have fallen behind in their studies as a result of COVID-19, school closures, daily electricity cuts, and rising poverty levels. We pray for those who step forward to support these young ones. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Palestinian Christians in the city of Akke in northern Israel form a small minority living among mostly Muslim and Jews. 500 pupils attend the Franciscan Teresantas High School in Akko, with only 133 pupils from Christian families. Ghada Makhoul, the school director, spoke of her passion to teach children to respect each other as human beings. Before the schools moved to distant learning, Due to the pandemic, they had been involved in a year-long project with a Jewish school. Make us know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. We are thankful for the efforts of teachers in the city of Akka to promote respect and understanding among their pupils. We pray that the fruit of this work will help to establish justice and peace in the Holy Land. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Raji Roger Cook, a pioneer graphic designer and Middle East activist, died peacefully at his home in Pennsylvania on Saturday, the 6th of February. He was the son of Palestinian immigrants and had, had dedicated his life to the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He served for 10 years on the task force for the Middle East sponsored by the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. Lord, we give thanks for the life and witness of Raji and for his deep concern for the sufferings of Palestinians living under occupation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our, prayer. hear our prayers. We join with the World Council of Churches in their prayers for the countries of Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Let's take a few moments of silent prayer. Let's remember all the sick, all those who have been infected by the virus, the people who have died. Let's remember our families and friends. Let's pray for all those who are in need.
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Let us confess our sins against God and neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Let's say together the Lord's Prayer in our different languages. Let's commit ourselves to the Agape Creed. Together, we say, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it does not keep a record of wrongs, it does not celebrate injustice, but rejoices in the truth. Love never gives up, never loses faith, always hopes, always endures. Love cannot be conquered. And together we say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.